I found myself bored. We were living in a hotel at the time and I was just sitting in our hotel room and I'm watching like Arabic soap operas. It was terrible. I was like, this blows. I'm going to take things into my own hands. So I get into a cab and I'm like, yo, take me to the fabric market. And he was like, what? And I was like, I know there's one. It exists. Call up your homeboys, figure it out. And so he calls somebody up and then he's like, okay, I know where it is. I was like, perfect, take me there. So he takes me and of course there's like a huge soup and I'm like, holy crap. It was like fabric upon fabric upon fabric. It was a dream. Friends don't let friends wear bad outfits. Assalamu alaikum and welcome to the One Foot in the Sink podcast, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Anis and Foz is here. Assalamu alaikum, everyone. And she is a fashion guru. It's Melanie El Turk. Hi, everyone. Assalamu alaikum. Hello, my friends. Muslims. Muslims. Muslim lifestyle podcast. What do you think the podcast is about? I think it's about Muslim because you put your foot in the sink when you do a do. It's about a story called the Ghostbusters. So, Foz. Would you let me wear a bad outfit? 100% yes. <laughs> <laughs> even, even what you're wearing now. So, you know, I didn't want to say anything, but, you know. Thanks. I should have changed. You're not a very good friend. Though. <laughs> no. And you know that. That's fine. What about you, Melanie? Would you let your friends wear bad outfits? You know, fashion is so subjective. Half the time when I think it's a bad outfit, they don't. So I've kept my mouth shut. <laughs> Unless they're a really good friend, in which case I'll be like, yo, don't wear that again. <laughs> What would be a bad outfit? I think just something that doesn't suit their like their body type or colors that don't suit them or, you know, trying to pull something off that like doesn't work with their own, you know, personal aesthetic. Like a yellow t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> You're messed up. Yeah, he's proper messed up. <laughs> he doesn't have my back at all. It's good. It's good, Dory. Let's move on. <laughs> all right. Let's get straight into our opening question. You guys ready for it? Yeah. So this episode's opening question is, you have the opportunity to give Darth Vader fashion advice. What would you say? And as usual, we'll start with you, Foz. Thanks, Fanice. Um, I've given some good thought to this. And Darth Vader's from like the 1970s. And also, although it's good to have retro kind of feel to him, I wouldn't change much because he's like legendary, right? It's Darth Vader. So you don't want to change much. So I would kind of tried to bring him a bit more into the future and kind of talk about smartware and kind of getting more kind of jazzed up. So in the middle of his chest plate, you've got that little computerized thing. I would kind of let him know about the Teletubbies and say, you know, you need to put a screen there and have a like a little TV on his chest. And so you can, you know, kids can plug in their PlayStation 4s. They can sit there playing it while he's walking around. And he would have a little screen on his chest. That would be my fashion advice. Hold on. Why would kids be plugged into Darth Vader? Darth Vader's the dark side. You want kids nowhere near him. So it's, it's, you make him more user-friendly, he's getting advice, in it? So I'm telling him about fashion, you know, it's, it's not just about what you wear, is it? So, um, yeah, it's about smartware. It's I like where you're you know, going with this. Kids. You're going with wearable tech. Yeah, tell you to be Darth Vader. <laughs> it's a new thing. <laughs> Interesting. What do you think of his answer, Melanie? Think of you what? know, I've never seen Star Wars. No way. I swear. Did you have to Google Darth Vader? I did. <laughs> No, I mean, I knew who Darth, I know who Darth Vader is. I didn't remember he had the cape because my initial gut reaction was like, he needs to cover up his aura, like, big time. <laughs> like, let's get that covered. Like, you know, navel to the knee, brother. Let's cover it up. But when I saw that cape, I was like, okay, he's trying. From the back. 
from the back, from the back is trying. Maybe we can drape it over the front. But I have to say, I mean, what what makes good fashion? You know, it's memorable. It's super unique. It's very one of a kind. I mean, I'm into it. It's all black. What more do you want? So basically, you were just telling him to cover up his modesty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just the, the front part, just a little bit. Yeah, I would have thought you'd gone for like a red helmet or something. <laughs> no, the all black is dope. I like it. Nice. Cool. Anise, what's your answer? Oh, man. Mine is completely out there now. So I was thinking he needs some color. I know he's a dark side, but he needs some color in his life. And do you know those um, Run DMC outfits? Those Adidas matching top and oh, bottoms? Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, the stripes. So I was thinking making him look a bit cool. This is where I'm coming from. So Darth Vader, he does a lot of these scenes where he's fighting with the lightsaber. So he has to be quite agile. So whatever he wears, he has to be, you know, he has to move around quite a bit. So, you know, he's got the Run DMC <laughs> outfit on and you can replace his helmet with the, you know, the Kango hat and put a gold chain around him as well. <laughs> so that when he's doing his lightsaber moves, you can have the Run DMC music in the background. You know, he can move. That's, that's a cool answer. I like. That's awesome. He could end his lightsaber move by doing like one of those helicopter spins on the floor. <laughs> Break dancing. He just gets a lightsaber and drops it and he walks off. <laughs> I think someone should Photoshop Darth Vader in a Run DMC outfit. I think outfit. you have to Photoshop it at this point. I mean, the, the visual is there for all of us. <laughs> I think my answer is the best. <laughs> <laughs> so today on our show, we've got Melanie Elturk. Thank you so much for joining uh, Melanie today. Me and Lisa are very excited to have you on. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. So you are an American Muslim entrepreneur. In 2010, you founded Hoot Hijab, a modest fashion brand. The company has gone from strength to strength and is now one of the largest U.S. brands for modest fashion. You aim to empower hijab-wearing women worldwide, and you are a regular contributor to Elle.com and have appeared on many mainstream media outlets in the U.S. So I'm sure there's much, much more, and you can add to that when we go into the show and fill in the blanks. Um, so today we want to hear your story, find out about Hoot Hijab and the perception of the hijab in today's society. We'd also love to hear your tips, lifestyle hacks, and how you stay on top of your game. Awesome. I'm into it. Sounds awesome. Before we do go into the main kind of bulk of the conversation, we want to find out a bit about yourself. So tell us about yourself, where you're from, about your family, your upbringing, your early memories. Sure. So I'm originally from Detroit, Michigan. My dad is Lebanese, born in, in Lebanon, and he came to America for college. Um, my mom came at the same time. She's from the Philippines. So my mother is actually not Muslim. She was born and raised Catholic. Uh, my parents are divorced, but um, yeah, they got divorced when I was five. So I didn't have a very Islamic upbringing because my dad kind of comes from not a very religious background at all. I mean, Lebanon in the 70s was super secular. They were, I mean, it was a civil war. Religion didn't play a large part in my dad's life growing up. So I'd say my mom's religion had more of an influence on us growing up. But my early memories are going to church and celebrating Christmas and, you know, all Easter. I remember all those things as a kid. I, I don't have early memories of Muslim holidays. I think I didn't even go to a mosque until I was like maybe nine or 10. I was, I was older. So when, after my parents got divorced, my dad got custody of us. And then he started slowly getting more into the religion. And that's how then it was introduced to us. Um, he had custody of us. So we lived with our dad, me and my older brothers. And then once we started going to Sunday school, then I started making friends with a whole bunch of Muslim girls. And it was really my Muslim friends that informed 
my identity as a Muslim woman more so than even my dad. I mean, he was the catalyst, obviously. Like, for example, my two older brothers, they were a bit older than me when the transition kind of happened. And they had all American, white American friends. And so it didn't really catch on for them too much. But because I really took to these group of Muslim girls, it really informed my decision to really wear hijab and to practice Islam. So yeah, that's kind of kind of my upbringing. The way you described it, I can really relate. So it's really fascinating hearing that. You talked about finding Islam a bit later on in life and because your friends. How about the hijab? Like, when did you start wearing a hijab and how was that transition for you? Yeah, so I put on the hijab in ninth grade, which is the first year of high school. So I technically didn't have to wear it, like Islamically speaking. Um, I wasn't of age yet, but I knew that hijab was expected of me in my home. So my, by that time, my dad had gotten really religious. Like it, it, he kind of had the path of like a convert, even though he was born Muslim. But you know how sometimes with converts, when they convert, they get really, really not extreme, but like really into the religion. They follow it to the T, like no exceptions, yeah. just super black and white. So my dad kind of got to that degree. And then the pendulum swung back in the other direction until until it made its way to the middle. Because for so long, he had been living like a life without religion. And then it's like, you know, hardcore religion. And then it's like, all right, we're back in the middle. But during that period, it was known that I would wear hijab eventually. It was just a matter of when. So I figured I'll put it on in ninth grade so that it's not so startling to my classmates yeah. when I walk in one day in like the middle of sophomore year, like, hey guys, I'm having a hijab on now, you know? And at the same time, a lot, like my very best friend who I credit a lot of my Muslim identity to, she was wearing it full time as well. And we were both going to the same high school that was not our home high school. So we went to an IB school and it wasn't in our school district. So we carpooled together and, um, you know, there was strength in numbers. Her and I wearing it together made a huge difference and made it a lot easier. And we even made this pact, like we went to the first day of orientation and we met all these new people. And we were like, you know, we're going to make a pact that we are going to be the same loud, obnoxious, crazy, funny people that we would be without the hijab. So we were almost kind of overcompensating a bit because we knew what the stereotype was and we wanted to prove to everyone, honestly, more so even like my teachers, like the adults in high school that, you know, my, my parents aren't forcing me to wear this. I'm wearing this because I want to, and I have a personality and I have a voice and, and I'm a strong person, you know, in that vein. So we made this pact that we, yeah, we would just be ourselves. And by the end of high school, you know how they have like mock awards or whatever? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So she won best personality. I won class clown and best dress, <laughs> wow. which is crazy in a hijab. I don't know how that happened. But um, yeah, so it paid off, I guess. I'm very curious in, in terms of when you look back at, you know, your upbringing and what you've been through, what do you feel looking back has really helped you get to where you are today? Um, a lot of things. The first thing that comes to my mind is the undying belief in myself that my parents instilled in me that I could do whatever I wanted to do. There were no limits for me. And I think when you grow up in a home, like my dad marrying a Catholic woman, so outside of his faith, outside of his race, outside of his culture, he married somebody that was completely different for him. And you have, in order to do that, you have to be a really open-minded person. And my mom, the same. So the way that they raised us as children was 
very different to what I then understood when dealing with and being around my friends who had two Muslim parents, like a two Arab parents or two Desi parents, and seeing how they were raised, it was so different. And I didn't realize how close-minded our immigrant parents could be about our ability to move freely in society and what we can do and what we can't do. There were so many limitations that my friends had all the time. I think my parents raised me just to being a super open-minded, no limits. You know, the world is my oyster. Just go out there and take it. Like the world is there for the taking. Go out and grab what's yours. And that for me had the biggest influence. And I think put me on this trajectory of feeling like I know that I was going to hit a ceiling in Detroit and in that community and that I needed to get out and just soar because it the community has a way of really boxing people in to this persona of what they can say and do. And it can be really crippling. And so, you know, my family was always so supportive of everything that I ever wanted to achieve and of my dreams. And um, that's 100% what made me a different person than all my friends. That's a really good insight. So I'm just curious now. So once you did go from Dubai, like what happened next? Yeah. So, um, so yeah, we fast forwarded <laughs> over a ton. So I went to, <laughs> so I went to law school after college. I actually wanted to go to art school and my dad was like, um, no. Wow. <laughs> and I know I just said that he was super open-minded, but the thing is, the other thing that was so important is my dad had a very strong understanding of who I was. And he knew that I brought so much to the table and I had a lot of intellect to share. And he's like, listen, you can do art, you can do fashion, you can all do all of that anytime you want, but go to grad school, go to law school, get this degree, and then you can you can do what you want with it. But just do that first. Don't waste away your intellect because it's very important. And that will inform what you do in the arts. So I was like, okay. And I also had, I was also very interested in it. I was torn between going to law school and going to art school. And my dad was the one who was like, go to law school. And he was right. I'm so happy I listened to him. So I worked for CARE. I'm sure you guys are familiar with CARE, the Council uh, on American Islamic Relations, uh, the Detroit branch. I worked there as a staff attorney right out of law school. And so my, my emphasis in law school and outside as a practicing attorney was civil rights law. And that was what I thought was my life's purpose. I thought that was why God created me to, to fight for the rights of people who didn't have a voice and, you know, the disenfranchised and be the civil rights attorney. Um, and that was the trajectory of my career. And then I got married. I moved to Chicago, which is where my husband is from. And then shortly thereafter, two years into Chicago, we got a great offer in Dubai and so we moved overseas. So we had actually wanted to move overseas. I wanted to go to Egypt, where my, hus my husband's Egyptian. I wanted to go to Egypt because I wanted to study Sharia at Al-Azhar. That was like my thing. And he's Egyptian. So he was like, let's do this. You know, he was, he was down with it. <laughs> but then the revolution happened. And that just screwed up all of our plans. So then when this opportunity came about in Dubai, we were like, okay, we're one step closer. You know, at least we'll be in the Middle East. We'll be overseas. We can do the living abroad thing. And we did. But before that, we had started the company together in Chicago shortly after we got married, just like a few years after we got married. I basically was super bored because I didn't take the <laughs> bar. I didn't take the bar in Illinois. And I was like, bump this. I didn't, I didn't know how, what to do with my time. I wasn't, I was never, ever a person who sat idle. I always had stuff to do, whether I was working or studying or in, like, just like indulging in my hobbies, which was usually creative stuff. And so just sitting at home, like cooking and waiting for my husband to come home. I was not about that life. That was not for me. <laughs> Even my dad, he was like, what are you doing with your life? He's like, get it together. You know, <laughs> so 
we started the company a few months after we got married, which was born out of number one, our entrepreneurial spirit, both my husband and I, we're both super business savvy and business minded. And then the fashion thing was, so I always had this knack for fashion. I'm clearly not formally trained, but I would like sew clothes in high school for myself, for my friends, because it was really hard to find like long skirts without slits, for example. In high school, that was like, you could never find that. Right. So I would start sewing this stuff by myself. So I was, I mean, I was good at it, but that wasn't enough to get me to go into fashion. What did it was knowing that there's this massive opportunity in the modest fashion space. It's weird to say that because that's not what we coined it or what we thought of it at the time because this industry didn't really exist yet. What did you call it at the time? I think we called it like Islamic fashion or Muslim fashion or I think hijab fashion. I don't even know. We inter we interplayed with a lot of words, but that never felt right to me because it's so subjective, people's interpretation of how, what Islamically we're supposed to dress like. So now we never say that. And we always just say modest fashion because it's also less exclusive because then it includes other faiths because yeah. certainly some Christian and Jewish women dress modestly as well. So that's what we say now. But back then it was almost like, I didn't even want to say a term at all. I just wanted to like make pretty hijabs. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was just hard. Like I knew that I had a problem finding really beautiful hijabs and I knew I wasn't the only one. I knew that if I provided options and gave access to Muslim women that they'd eat it up because I know they suffer like I do. Yeah. And that's exactly what happened. My feeling, my gut feeling was right. You know, I read somewhere, said something that you're drawn to fashion of the 40s and the 50s. Yeah. And I was like, oh my God. Like, for me, the penny just dropped. I was like, yeah, ladies' fashion in the 40s and 50s was pretty modest, like, yeah. you know, stylish and yeah. very modest. Before then, I never thought about it until I read that you were a fan of the 40s and 50s. Yeah. And then I Googled some pictures of women's fashion in the 40s and 50s. I was like, oh, it's pretty elegant. <laughs> yeah, it's beautifully elegant. So classy. That was the last time that we had that type of just elegance in class across the board that was in that was such a magical time in fashion for me it was before Darth Vader <laughs> <laughs> I'm really really genuinely very inspired for the way you kind of you've got to where you've got to now um do you carried on in Dubai with the business when we moved to Dubai I thought at that point, okay, we're just going to like close up shop because we had marketed so much us being a brand that was made in the USA. And I had to be so integral to the production process that how could I do anything remotely from Dubai and still carry on production in Chicago? But then... You know, subhanAllah, and I wasn't even really like praying on it at that time. Now I do everything. I pray on everything. I pray istikhara for everything. But at that time, I kind of was just like letting it go. And then subhanAllah, how God just like facilitated it to continue. I don't even know. I don't even know how. I just remember one day I found myself in the fabric markets. Well, what happened was I got into a cab. I again, I found myself bored. I wasn't working yet. I was, we were living in a hotel at the time and I was just sitting at, in our hotel room while Ahmed's away at work and I'm watching like Arabic soap <laughs> operas. It was terrible. I was like, this blows. I'm going to take things into my own hands. So I get into a cab and I'm like, yo, take me to the fabric market. And he was like, what? And I was like, I know there's one. It exists call up your homeboys, figure it out. And so he calls somebody up and he's like talking in Urdu. And then he's like, okay, I know where it is. I was like, perfect. Take me there. 
So he takes me, and of course, there's like a huge souk, and there's, you know, tons. Um, Anis, it's um, all in Burdube and in Dira. Nice. Which I'm nice sure he, Yeah, knife. Ex- precisely. He took me to Naif. That's where he took me. So I go to Naif, and I'm like, holy crap. Like, what? what is happening? There was... It was like fabric upon fabric upon fabric. It was a dream. And particularly because the Chicago garment district was measly and dying and pathetic and sad. To see all these fabrics, I was like, jackpot. I hit the jackpot because they were the most perfect fabrics for hijab and gorgeous prints. And it was just jackpot. So I couldn't I couldn't help myself. I just started buying <laughs> fabric. And I remember I took it home and my husband was like, what are you doing? What are you, what are you planning on doing with this fabric? I was like, I don't know, but I'll figure it out. I literally cut that fabric on the bed of that hotel room myself. Wow. And I took it to a tailor who then sewed the seams. That was like old school when we first moved to Dubai and I was trying to figure things out. My God, if you saw our operation now, you'd be like, damn, it's crazy. But like I, I would cut them myself. Even in Chicago when we were doing this, I wouldn't I wasn't cutting anything myself. We had a whole production, you know, cycle. But I was like, just I'll make it work. You know, that's just like my ethic. My eth- my work ethic is just I, I just, I make it happen. I don't sit around. I don't wait. I don't, you know, I just, I'm boom, 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 boom. Let's, let's go. Let's make it yeah. happen. We'll figure out a way. And when you have that mentality, like God just opens doors and windows and finds a way for you because you have the will, like you want to make it happen. He's going to make it happen for you. And he'll send people your way that help you out. So yeah, that's, that's kind of how it started in Dubai. So how did you come up with the name then? So I, I'm curious because it's a really cool name and I really like it. And I just want to know what was the inspiration and the thought process behind it? Thanks. Yeah. So back when we first started, before we put up our Facebook page or our website, I it was like the funnest t- time of building a business is getting to decide the personality of your business. Who do you want to be? Do you want to be edgy? Do you want to be boho? Do you want to be classy? Do you want to be time? Like, what do you want to be? And there were so many things I wanted. I wanted to be whimsical and airy and bohemian. But at the same time, I wanted to be classy and edgy and Chanel. And so I had to stick with one. And um, you can kind of see it in our logo. It has a real like Chanel vibe. That was what I was going for, that like timeless look. So I had written down maybe like 15, 20 names that I just came up with off the top of my head. And Oat Hijab or Hot Hijab, however you want to say it, that was on the top of the list. That was the first name I thought of. And at first I hated it because I was like, people aren't going to know how to pronounce this word and they're going to assume I mean hot, like H-O-T. And this whole thing was kind of controversial anyways, like Muslim fashion, what are you doing? This is not fashion, this is hijab. And so I was like, damn, I don't want people thinking I'm saying hot. There are, you know what I mean? It's already kind of controversial, but then it just stuck. Like I couldn't get it out of my head. I couldn't, it just stuck. And um, for better, or for worse, I was like, all right, let's do it. And I love the alliteration. I'm, I'm really into, I'm really into typography. And so having that HH was, um, I really liked that. Her Highness. Oh, I love that. <laughs> I love that you just said that. Because, you know, in French, oat means high or to elevate. Yeah. And so essentially what we're saying is we're like making hijab high. We're elevating hijab, you know. When, when Foz and I were getting into this whole podcast thing, we're really trying to figure out a name. And the same thing as you, we're like, okay, what kind of brand do you want to be? Because we don't want to be a religious podcast. We're not scholars or anything yeah. like that. But we want to have a positive message. We want to inspire people. Between Foz and I, we have quite a lot of banter, right? Mm. So 
we're thinking, do we put Islam or Muslim or something in our name or do we not? And then we settled for one foot in the sink because if you know, you know. That's right. It's one of those things. That's beautiful. So... So in your case, like you've got hijab in your name, like did you ever go through the same process of whether you should have something that is directly linked to being a Muslim in your brand name or not? Yeah, we had a long, lengthy discussion, my husband and I, and we talked to a lot of people about it. So on the one hand, we did think about just having any name that had no connotation to Islam, to religion, to hijab at all. And then we thought about, but what, let's not shy away from what we're doing. It's hijab. You know, we're not trying to be like that mainstream Western brand, but then they sell hijabs. Like it would be such a weird disconnect. And then at the same time, another thing that as Ahmed with his marketing background, he's a digital marketing, uh, that's his background. He was like, dude, hello, we're selling hijabs for SEO. You need the word hijab in the name, <laughs> which, is paid, <laughs> which is literally paid off. Like that was genius because we are top ranking in so many of the search, you know, the search hits because we have the word hijab in our name, which is amazing. But at the same time, having it in our name was also a conscious decision to keep myself in check that this was about hijab. And I wasn't going to veer away from that. And because I have the word hijab in the name, I have to be responsible about the imagery I put out, the tone I put out, the words that I put out. And that kind of keeps me in check because I have a huge responsibility. If I'm calling this a hijab company, then I better keep it halal and keep it, you know, just keep myself in check with the branding and everything that we do. And so I really like that I have that because God only knows where I, where I might've ended up if I had kind of explored other avenues. Man, there's, there's so much, what you just said, there's so much I want to follow up on. Okay. <laughs> so you mentioned controversial, right? Yeah. And the whole thing about modest fashion and the boundaries between being fashionable and also like the boundaries of Islam. Mm -hmm. Like, and, and nowadays there's quite a lot of people in the whole modest fashion space, not just fashion, but makeup yeah. and all of that stuff. In your opinion, like, what do you think the boundaries the boundaries are? Because you also mentioned about being responsible, right? Representing a halal brand. Mm -hmm. Have you had any challenges in that area? Yeah, a ton. <laughs> a ton. Our our latest challenge was this past week was Valentine's Day. And oh, yeah. we're like, let's have a Valentine's Day collection, you know, curate all the pinks and reds we have, put them in a collection and boom, done. And for us, Valentine's Day here in America is such a secular holiday. I thought it was a Hallmark holiday. So we put up this Valentine's Day edit. And in the meantime, I was like, I should probably check this, though, with my dad. So my dad, who's, who's, by the way, he's now an imam and like Mashallah. a scholar. <laughs> Mashallah, nice. Yeah, he's come a long way. We should interview him on the podcast. You should. My dad's actually hella dope. And he, he came, like, he came to America on the dream of like making it in a rock band. And he was this crazy hippie. <laughs> and then now people call him Sheikh. And I'm like, what's going on? <laughs> so I had WhatsApp voice noted him and I was like, Baba, listen, we're doing this Valentine's Day collection. Let me know what you think. Is this appropriate? Should I do it? Should I not? In the meantime, while I was waiting for his response, we kind of had to move on it. So we just did it. In the meantime, we got some customers who were hating big time. They weren't hating. They were expressing their very valid opinion, which was, hey, I don't know that this is appropriate. Maybe you shouldn't be pushing Valentine's Day. And I didn't really respond. I did respond. Actually, I was like, 
well, what's wrong with it? Tell me what's wrong with it. It's an American holiday, I understand, but that in and of itself doesn't make it un-Islamic. So explain it to me. No one could explain it. So I just let it alone. Then I get, <laughs> I get a voice note, like four minute voice note back from my dad. And he's like, listen, Melanie, I've just, he's <laughs> like, I've been on the internet for four hours scouring the net for you trying to find some loophole that says that we can celebrate Valentine's Day and I haven't found anything. And I looked at all the fatawa and every single scholar without exception says that we do not celebrate it. And I was like, oh God, are you sure? And he was like, then I get on the phone. I call him and he's like, Melanie, I, I promise. I looked for a loophole. I looked for even one dissenting opinion. There was nothing because the origin was is Christian in nature. And so as Muslims, we don't celebrate the holidays of other faiths, which makes sense. I just thought I didn't realize it was a Christian holiday because it's become so commercialized, you know? So then we took all everything down, all, all of the promotion. I mean, we did, we put money in marketing spend. We put graphics together. We put, we took everything down and we were like, oh man, that was a goof. We should have done our homework, you know, more thoroughly before putting that out. It was, uh, it's St. St. Valentine's, right? right? It was a uh, saint or something. Yeah. Who, who knew? Who knew? <laughs> you know, Melanie, I was just thinking you just gave all Muslim guys an excuse not to celebrate Valentine's <laughs> <laughs> Actually, yesterday my dad texted me a photo of all these like they looked like they were like Gulf Arabs with like the you know the headpiece and they were all holding yeah. red roses giving them out to people and he's like maybe I was wrong I don't know <laughs> that's hilarious <laughs> yeah I saw this funny message come out the other day it says shout out to all the Muslim girls getting teddy bears and flowers today knowing that they can't take it home <laughs> <laughs> So oh my god real talk that happened to me in college real talk that is so funny i mean for the record me and my husband don't celebrate it because we just think it's stupid like it's dumb we don't do anything yeah it's a bit cheesy it's so cheesy it's like don't tell me when i need to go buy flowers for my spouse shut up <laughs> buy it the next day when it's cheaper yeah exactly totally there you go um so um i've lost my train of thought now <laughs> that was funny okay <laughs> I read also somewhere about when you started the brand, you were operating behind the scenes. Yeah. And then you said that one of the biggest impact that you felt that happened to your brand is when you put yourself out there. Yeah. Um, I know a lot of people who enter this whole Muslim space and they don't really put themselves out there 100% mm. because, you know, they're still kind of towing with is, is this a full-time thing? Do I really want to put myself out there? Mm -hmm. And it would be interesting to hear your views on why you think that was such a big impact on your brand yeah. when you did that. You know, it had an impact because of who I am as a person and my comfort level of putting myself out there. There isn't a one-size-fits-all answer because a lot of entrepreneurs ask me the same question. And my answer is always, it depends on your comfort level. Do you feel okay putting yourself out there and allowing people to see personal parts of your life? If you're okay with that and, you know, you have something to say, you know, you actually have something of substance to put out there then I would encourage you to do it. But if you don't feel comfortable with that and you aren't ready for, for the heat that also comes because you let the good in with the bad, then maybe you shouldn't put yourself through that stress or that heartache because maybe you can't handle it. So basically what happened with me was we were on Facebook and as far as social media goes, we were on Facebook for a long time and that was our main social media platform. And, you know, we were just a brand. You didn't know who was behind it. Like Zara, you don't know who's behind it. It just is. But then when Instagram happened and cut, it's so imagery focused. Like how many pictures of hijabs can I post, you know? 
So I put a, I, I started posting photos of myself slowly and of my style and what I, how I wore the hijabs. And that's when engagement really started picking up. And I was like, oh, okay. So people like to see me. I, I just assumed it would make us look unprofessional. Like nobody wants to see who's behind this company, you know, like put it away. Like, who do you think you are? But, <laughs> but the, the whole landscape of branding and marketing and social media change so drastically that now even the biggest brands are trying so hard to connect on such a deeper level in a way that we do very naturally. So I use my strengths to my advantage, which is I'm a naturally very social person because I love people. I love to talk and engage with people. I enjoy understanding people, why they are the way they are, what makes them tick. That stuff to me is super interesting. I was a sociology major. I like studied people. That's that's what I like to do. And that's one of my core strengths. So I knew that if I could connect with people, which I do very naturally, that it would really help the brand and help us inform decisions about our customers and and what they like, what they don't like, but also more importantly, build this very important community of women who need support in all levels, in all facets, not just, you know, from a style perspective, but also on a deeper level with struggles and issues they're having keeping their hijab on or want, you know, like not wearing it and struggling to put it on. And so by putting myself out there, I was able to make a huge difference in the way that our brand communicated with our customers and then built this great community. When you look at your brand, your company, it's very personal. It's it's not kind of just selling fashion. There's so much going on. There's such a good following. There's such a good community feel you get there. And even as just a guy, like, wow, this is so cool. Like you've created such a big community around it. And I'm curious to find out like, because that really sets you apart from from what I've seen. It does. It really, yeah. really does set you apart. What was your driver behind that? And you you got your finger on the pulse. How do you do that? And what kind of key things would you say have helped you kind of stay so close to, one to your customers, but also build your community? You have to make yourself accessible. I never was above answering. DMs, comments. It's funny, there was a time on social media where it's like, if you wanted to be a real blogger, not that I'm a blogger, but like, if you wanted to be a real influencer, you wouldn't respond to these comments because you're above that and your time is valuable. And I always thought that was trash because people are coming on here, taking time out of their day to comment something really kind on your photo and you're not going to have the respect to comment back. So I was, I was never above engaging with you know, the following or the the community, but I took it a step forward by really listening to people. I mean, I made friends with customers. I've made friends with people on our social media platforms that I will see in person. And it's like, I've known them forever because we've been chit-chatting almost daily, you know, on Snapchat direct or Instagram DM. And so I make myself super, super accessible to everybody so that they feel like they really do have a friend in me and they do. You know, and what's what's crazy is I was so blessed to to grow up in a really tight knit Muslim community. But there are so many Muslims out there living in these rural communities, very remote, where they don't have a community. They don't have a, a local masjid. And so they look online for people who can become their community, their support system, their big sister. And that's what I've become to a lot of girls. And I love that. I love like last night I just had an Insta story. And I the, and I'm so grateful to you that we've been able to build such a warm and loving group of girls. They're not catty. They're not, they don't jump to conclusions. They're not harsh. They're really 
beautiful women and and it's all about love all the time and because that's what I'm about I'm all love I don't I don't diss anybody I don't knock anybody you know I keep things very light and so that's kind of what we've attracted and just yesterday like I can talk about really deep subjects with a with thousands of people and not get hate not get harsh comments like we can have a really substantive deep conversation that is meaningful and it's a beautiful thing I'm so blessed every time I think about it I'm like man I don't know what I did to deserve these uh, like this beautiful community but it's really it's an amazing thing no it's really good because like I said I think that is what really makes you stand out compared to other brands that we've seen because you are engaging with your customers and stuff that you say is is real talk you know like it's a real thing that people are going through you know I really think that takes in this era that we live in today there's not a lot of self-awareness going on there's not a lot of self-introspection there's not enough people who really know themselves inside and out. And because I I know myself so well and I have such a good grasp on who I am, what I'm set out to do, I think when I talk about those things, it resonates so much with people because they're just looking for that authenticity in themselves and so they seek it out in others. And at the same time, it allows me to have a unbiased, completely objective stance on issues without getting emotional or being, you know, partial to one side or the other, so that we can discuss things from a very productive, constructive standpoint. And unfortunately, I don't think enough people are tapping into that part of themselves that has something of value and of substance to say, because they're unsure of who they are. Does this make sense? Yeah, yeah, 100%. Yeah, so they're not so they're not putting that content out because they're unsure. They don't know if they should be saying this or taking that stand or bringing up this issue. Whereas for me, I'm pre- I'm really confident in who I am, for better or for worse. And if I make a mistake, I'll apologize. And if I say something wrong, I'll admit it. I'm not above that. I'm I'm not perfect, but I want to have the conversation. And so I make sure that you know, above all of the fashion and the fun and, and the hijabs, it's fun, it's beautiful, it's it's great. But at its core, the essence of what we do is meant to enrich women's lives, to make them feel better about who they are, about their identities, about their faith. These are at the core. This is at the core of what the community is all about and why we exist as a brand. And you talked about the hijab and, you know, what it's about and things. How do you think that whole, how it's evolved over time and where it is now? Because it's very much in the media now, like the Barbie doll. How do you think that's evolved recently in the marketplace? It's crazy what's happening. Isn't it crazy? Yeah. I remember when I first started this company, I said to people, my goal, because people would ask, what are you trying to accomplish? I said, I am trying to make hijab mainstream. That's what I said. And I literally remember family laughing in my face, telling me that will never happen. Keep dreaming. That will never happen. And that lit a fire inside of me. (laughs) And I was like, you watch what I do. Don't tell me there's not, you know, I can't do something. That just lit this passion inside me. And I've been working so hard. And, you know, what to say of all these crazy announcements, like you said, Barbie and Macy's with Verona, which is so exciting. And what was the thing that just happened? Um, the Mark Jacobs show um, in New York Fashion Week, all in hijab. That's all hijab. This was the moment, that sweet moment <laughs> I had that I've been waiting for since that day in 2010 was the Gap reached out to us over the summer. And they were like, hey, we want to use some of your hijabs in our advertising campaign. And we were like, dope, let's <laughs> do this. 
So we sent them like 20, 30 hijabs, whatever they wanted. They used one of them in the campaign. And that spring, every single gap across the world, without exception, had a huge photo in the window of their store of a woman in hijab. I don't know if you guys saw it, but that to me was like, it doesn't get any more mainstream than the gap. And every single gap in the world has a huge photo of a woman in hijab and it's my hijab. I was like, (laughs) Ooh, God is good. God is good. Cause that's exactly what I set out to do. And it's amazing that, you know, women like Ibti Hajj who are representing for the community. And again, the Macy's announcement, that's exactly why we're doing this. So that Muslim women have options, that they're validated, that they're heard. And so that hijab is normalized in the mainstream. So it's not mysterious and it doesn't evoke fear, but instead it's just another woman, just like a plus size woman or like a petite woman. There's also women who dress modestly and who cover their hair. You know, that's all I ever wanted to do. And so everything that's happening right now, it's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah, alhamdulillah. alhamdulillah. Wherever you look, like there's lots going on and it's all alhamdulillah, it's great stuff. Yeah, exactly. I don't know how you guys as Muslim men are dealing with all this. If I was a Muslim guy right now, I would feel like, dang, I need to step my game up because these Muslim women are out there. They are killing it. Do you know, the hipsters are growing their beards. So, you that's know, they're true, representing. That's true. That's true. I like that. <laughs> so beards, beards are back. Beard oil sales are going through the roof as well. So we're out there. That's awesome. The Muslim marketplace is blowing up. Um, what excites you? Like, I know modest fashion is, is a huge area, but is there anything else in the Muslim marketplace which you think you're very excited about? Um, gosh, um, I'm just so enthusiastic about Muslims finding their life's purpose in a way that serves their community, that serves God above all, and going out and just getting it, whether that is in fashion or that's in sports or that's in media or in entertainment, in politics, in journalism. I'm just, I'm so excited to see so many Muslims, particularly Muslim women, representing and making a real difference in all of these fields. And that's what I've been waiting for, for us as a community to stop with the self-victimization and to really come out of this identity crisis and this crisis of confidence to be bold and to, to know who they are without apology and go out there and do what they're meant to do, to serve. And that's all I've wanted to see. And the fact that we're seeing more and more of it, that's what gets me really excited. Yeah, that is quite amazing because in the past, we, we were hiding our religion yeah. at home. But now people have that confidence to represent their religion. And, you know, Islam is more of a way of life in the West, which is amazing to see. It is. When I look at you, you think of you like a role model. If somebody is looking to start into a Muslim marketplace and maybe do something, but then just push themselves and want to get out there, but they're not sure. And what advice would you give to them? I would say have a very, very clear intention from the get-go. What are you setting out to achieve? What do you want to do? And dream big. I could have said my goal, my vision is to provide hijabs to women, right? To give women access to hijab. That probably would have made us a nice, healthy lifestyle business where we weren't really profitable. We weren't 
going after big mainstream names. We were just making a healthy, healthy, fun little lifestyle business like in your basement or whatever. But that wasn't my vision. My vision was to make hijab mainstream. I dreamt big. And as a result of that huge dream, I made big leaps and I I just hustled so much harder. And so I would say, don't sell yourself short. Have confidence in, in your abilities. And even if it's people laugh at you, your family no less, don't let that deter you. In fact, the fact that people are laughing at you is probably a good indication that you're on the right track. Because, you know, when people... Like when you say something as revolutionary, if I'm like, if I can say that word as making hijab mainstream back in 2010, if that doesn't startle people, then maybe you're not doing it right. And like even today, like, so we released this luxury collection last month and the reception was precisely what I wanted, which was we ruffled some feathers a lot of people, like just today, I just saw some some Instagram posts right before I came on that was like kind of bashing our what we've done and saying like, oh, imagine if you were trying to like, you're trying to do good in the world and you're, you think you're getting good deeds and you, you make hijabs, but then you price them at $300. And it's like, that's exactly what we set out to do was to again, revolutionize the fashion industry, we created a whole new category in fashion. Luxury hijabs didn't exist on mass, ready to wear until we put it out. What existed was couture, one of a kind, you'd have to go to a, somebody to make it for you, a one of a kind piece. And that's cool, that's great we have that option. But why shouldn't, why can't we have a Chanel for hijabs? Why not? And the fact that people were so resistant to it, that told me we were doing something right. Because it was just, it's like, they've never heard of it. That What do you mean? How, how can you do that? Well, why can't we do that? Who's saying we can't do that? You know, so for me, we just want to keep pushing the boundaries Within a halal way, obviously, <laughs> like within the means, obviously I consulted with my dad, with scholars, like, is this okay? You know, but just pricing something at $325 doesn't inherently make it un-Islamic. If you have the means and, you know, it's within your lifestyle, great. If not for you, you can shop our everyday hijabs, great. But why can't we have it? You know, so I would say just dream big, know what your intention is, what you're setting out to do, and, and don't cut yourself short. Yeah, there's a couple of things in there that I just want to touch on. Could you tell us a bit about, you know, what's the inspiration behind your hijab, the designs, and you've got so many options out there. Then you've got the everyday ones, and you've got the luxury ones. Yeah. What's the behind the scenes? What is the thought process and the inspiration? Where does it all come from? Well, the thought process is every woman, and today we're still severely lacking, but every woman who chooses to wear hijab should have options for every occasion in her life. So, So if she's going to work, if she's you know, running errands, if she's working out, if she's going to a wedding, if it's her own wedding, if she's a doctor and needs to access her ears with a stethoscope, if she's a dentist and needs to put in her face mask that goes behind her ears, she should have a hijab that meets every single need of her life. And so as a hijab company, where we're very focused on this one category, we're starting to build out all those different needs. And We've got everyday unlock, our everyday basics we have done for a long time and we've succeeded. Now the next thing was naturally a natural fit for us was formal wear because we used to do clothing and that was skewed more towards formal wear anyways. And that was, you know, kind of our MO. So doing a formal wear 
hijab line just made sense for us. But then we took it another step further when we realized that the way which in which we wanted to do it, we didn't want to sacrifice on the materials. We didn't want to sacrifice on the craftsmanship. And in order to do that, we had to price it in a certain way so that we could afford the materials and the people that it took to sit here by hand. It's funny because on that Instagram post, somebody was like defending us and saying, yeah, but for this type of craftsmanship and these materials, you have to pay people their, their right and pay them fairly. And then one person commented being like, yeah, or you could just go to go directly to their manufacturer overseas and seeing it sold at a stall for $10. And I was like, <laughs> The fabric alone costs a hundred dollars a yard. What don't you get? Like people don't get it. People don't understand because they've been so accustomed to fast fashion and forever 21. And they want the best quality for the least amount of money. And that's just not how it works. And particularly for us as Muslims, I mean, I, I mean, for real, we have, I mean, we make these all in house and we have women who we hire, who sit there for hours beating Hours. Can you imagine what we're going to pay them pennies on a dollar for their work? Of course not. You're going to yeah. give them their due. And so the price goes, it's, it's priced accordingly. So that's how it became a luxury line because we were like, this is too expensive for just formal wear. This isn't formal wear. This is luxury, you know, and inshallah, we're going to build out formal wear that isn't a, a, a lower price point. But we really wanted to go big first and not compromise on the design, on the vision and really just, just do it, do it, do it right. This is a common theme that seems to be coming up. Anyone that started up a Muslim brand, mm. and it's come up about two or three times now with our guests, typically within our communities, because you're in a Muslim marketplace, you're used to being getting sold things, low price, low quality. Because you're a Muslim, you just need it, so just buy it, and here you go. But now we've seen that evolve, and so now even this, like, it's a very similar theme, and it's amazing to see. Um, but one thing I wanted to find out from yourself was how do you deal with challenges? How do you deal with that negativity? Does it kind of keep you up at night? What, what's your kind of tip to kind of deal with stuff like that? You know, so there was one. Um, so, for example, when when we ha- when we started the luxury line, we started the marketing for it months in advance, like getting people ready, like it's a new era, the first of its kind, it's coming. And I still stand by what we said, which is this level of craftsmanship these fabrics in this design at this price point on mass ready to wear is the first of its kind. We haven't seen this before. That's not to say that there weren't people doing formal hijabs. Of course there were. That's not to say they weren't, there weren't hijabs that were embellished with Swarovski crystals or made of silk. Of course there are. But something that happened was we got a lot of blowback, particularly from a couple companies one of which I really did feel for because she had she is somebody who does couture, one of a kind pieces for her brides, and she does incredible work. And I know firsthand the blood, sweat, and tears that goes into what she does. And she felt really hurt that a big brand like us, and it's crazy when the way that people pitted us as like we're the Goliath. And I was like, really? I thought we were the David. But <laughs> all right. Like we're this big company, you know, taking credit for other people's work. And that kept me up at night. Because I, f- I didn't want someone to feel like I had discredited them or I'm taking something from them. And so, you know, she had posted something on Instagram publicly. But again, I'm not a, 
I don't, I'm not, a, I'm a no controversy type of person. So I DM'd her a long DM, really trying to get her to understand what we meant by our message and that in no way, shape or form am I trying to discredit you. Quite to the contrary, I was so excited when I learned about you because now when we have brides, I can send them over to you you know, looking for something custom. There's, a, there's a, I have an actual answer for them. Like, hey, here's this woman who does great work. But I understood her frustration. And so that is something that really, mm-hmm. that, that kept me up. The regular stuff of like, oh, this is too expensive or this isn't hijab. That stuff I don't, uh, I don't even pay attention to. Like this girl that I'm telling you about that I just saw before I got on, that I don't pay any mind to stuff like that because you're always going to have detractors and that's that's okay. There should be people. None of us, I mean, we're not a monolith. We have opinions. We have, you know, we all have our own way of thinking and, and that's a, a beautiful thing. So the other stuff I don't, I really don't listen to, but, but that, like, that was an instance mm-hmm. where I, it, I felt bad. I couldn't sleep that night. I felt really, I felt terrible. Wow. Um, and so then that takes us to our next section, which is our tip section. So takeaways for the listeners. So one of the things we wanted to kind of go over was, and listening to your story, you've been through this. So if anyone is good to give advice on it, it should be you. So what kind of advice would you give to anyone feeling pressured about wearing a hijab and equally being pressured to take it off? Oh, man, taking it off. That's a tough one. I have a friend going through that right now, and it's so hard. On the first, you know, taking it off or you know, putting it on, struggling to put it on. The best advice I can give anybody is to just, and this is the advice I have when it comes to any matter, is to strengthen your relationship with God. I think that without that relationship with God, the hijab is almost, it's not that it's meaningless, but it's its going to be difficult. You know, you put this on every single day in obedience to God, And if you don't have a strong enough relationship with him where you feel like, yes, I want to put this on to obey God, then you're going to lose conviction in it. And that's how I've been able to keep that strong conviction in my heart for hijab for so long, so consistently, because my relationship with God is so strong. So whether it's praying or wearing hijab or abstaining from certain sinful behavior, as long as you're close to God, you'll get through it. And that's how, that's what gives you the strength to abstain. And that's what gives you the strength to pray and wake up for Fajr because you yearn for that connection. You can't wait to wake up for Fajr and put your head to the ground so you can feel the nourishment, the spiritual nourishment that prayer gives you. You can't wait to put your hijab on because you feel that protection that hijab is meant to give you. You feel that immediate respect that people give you just by virtue of being a woman who's veiled. So really work on your relationship with God. And I th- the best advice anyone gave me was like, why don't you just talk to God about it? And I was like, what, what does that mean? And then when I understood, like, you can talk to God at any time. You don't have to be in prayer. You don't have to be speaking Arabic. Just talk to, when you're talking to yourself, who do you think is listening? You know, just talk to God. He's there for you. He's listening. He wants to help. And so if you're talking to him and, and you want to develop that relationship with him, it'll happen. You just have to have the will to want to do that. So that's my advice. Just get close to God. Hold on to your prayers. Because if you're praying, if you're a regular, consistent person who prays five times a day, if you don't wear hijab, it's really difficult. What do you do when you're out and you need to pray? Do you just miss your prayer? God bless all the women who carry hijab around with them so that they don't miss the prayers. I have so much, the utmost respect for women who do that because I know that's not easy. 
but eventually hijab will become it will come naturally because you want to keep up your prayers yeah that's a conundrum with guys living in hot countries walking around in shorts and it's prayer time you need to yeah it's the same thing around for something to cover yourself you've got it really tough and he's in a hot country <laughs> <laughs> you know in like the four years we lived in dubai my husband only wore shorts when we went to the beach for that reason because he's like, what are we going to do? I'll be out and then I need to pray. And then what am I going to do? Wear a skirt? <laughs> um, but one more thing I want to ask. Um, so it, what resources or books would you recommend for anybody, either if they want to learn about fashion or they're wanting to be more productive in their life? Are there any kind of, yes, I would definitely recommend those books or anything for anyone? For fashion, I have nothing to give. <laughs> I have no great resources. Fashion is like, you either got it or you don't. You get it or you don't. I don't think fashion is something you can learn. You either have that sartorial eye where you pick up on the tiniest of nuances. Like I remember when I was a kid, I was so vocal about my clothes. And my mom would be like, it's fine. It's, you know, it's a t-shirt. I'm like, no, I don't like the sleeves. I was so particular from such a young age. I'm still super particular. So I think that fashion is just something yeah. like you either have it or you don't. When it comes to being productive, a really good book I read is called 168 Hours, You Have More Time Than You Think. And it's a book on really evaluating your life and what you spend your time doing, your precious time. And it gets you to the conclusion after you kind of like literally log hours of what you spend your time doing, that if you're not spending your hours and your time in service of your gifts and your talents, then you're wasting your time. I, I also read that book at a re really crucial time where I was, I was at a fork in the road trying to decide between continuing my legal career um, in Dubai or quitting, moving to New York City, and then doing this company full time because I was at a crossroads. And I read that book and it was so informative to me. So that's a really good book. That's a really good book. Yeah. One more piece of advice. What's a recent item that you purchased that's really impacted you? This is going to sound so, so <laughs> superficial, <laughs> but it was just fashion week last week. And, you know, at fashion week, you got to go all out. Like you can't just look good. Like you got to, it's almost like, it's almost like you have to peacock. Like you, you have to, <laughs> you know, you got to go all out. So I was doing some shopping and I found these leather pants that here's, here's why this is epic because leather pants became a trend for women, but they were always like super tight, like leather leggings almost, or like jeggings. And you know, as a modest dresser, I, I didn't wear them because they were too tight. And, but I want to wear leather pants. Like that's freaking awesome. Why can't I have leather pants? So I just have been patiently waiting for the perfect pair and I found them and they're nice and loose and I don't feel self-conscious in them. They're not too tight. And I was just like, this has changed everything. Like my whole wardrobe just got this crazy upgrade and literally I could put anything on top of these pants and they would look, it would just take it to another level. So I'd have to say that made a big impact on my life. <laughs> uh, every time I think of leather pants, did you ever watch Friends back in the day? Yeah, of course. There's an episode when Ross wears leather pants and uh, he gets so hot in them that they start to shrink. <laughs> oh my God. You know what's so funny? That's such a farce. That doesn't happen. The opposite happens. They stretch out so much. Oh, that's so funny. <laughs> So we're now going to move to our quick fire round. Um, so we're going to get started. Um, I'm going to ask you the first question. What's your favorite city? My favorite city is New York City. It's always been my favorite city. Is that why you moved there? 
No, we moved here because we actually had investors who were out there who were really interested in us. And they were like, but you need to live in New York. And we were like, no, don't tell us where we have to live. But then when we came out here to meet that, we didn't end up taking their investment. But when we moved out here to meet, when we came out here, Ahmed and I, my husband, we were like, dude, we should move here. This is the best city on earth. And we're like, yes. And, you know, it's like the, the, it's one of the fashion capitals of the world and it's close to home. So, you know, you can build an amazing business here. The, the vibrancy of the city, it's like, it's like no place else. And the hustle, everyone here is living on a dream. It's an amazing feeling. It's just the coolest city on earth. I just, I can't get enough in New York City. Okay, um, so next question, your most creative or funniest quick hijab solutions. So for example, if somebody unexpectedly visits your house, you know, what would you do? Like, what, would you, what would your solution be? I have literally taken, I've taken coats from the coat closet because you know that's right next to the door, you know, when the doorbell yeah. rings and you're like, oh, what should I do? And there's like a, there's the coat closet right there. So I've literally taken a coat and just like, I'm not telling you to do that. That's not a hack. Yeah. But I have done that before <laughs> and answered the doorbell. Right, yeah. That's what I was looking for. I was thinking like a blanket, like what would you do? Because whenever someone comes, my wife like, oh my God, I've got nothing. Like, what do I wear? What do I wear? She just gets any cloth and just, <laughs> and you're like, wait, wait at the door, wait. <laughs> That's hilarious. The blanket would be much better than a coat. <laughs> Okay, the next one is describe yourself in three words. Um, I'd say energetic. Um, I'd say hustler. <laughs> and I'd say reflective. I've never had to do that before. That just came out of nowhere. Yeah, as I say, it's, it's good. And it's good. I think it reflects you very well. <laughs> cool. And then the next one, if you could give a hijab to anyone, who would it be? If I could give a hijab to anyone, dead or alive. Either, anything. Okay, I so badly wanted to give, wanted to see our one of our luxury hijabs in Grace Kel- on Grace Kelly, the former princess of Monaco. No, when we thought about like the, the inspiration for these hijabs, I, I kept going back to like these, you know, I mean, wearing headpieces used to be a thing. That's, it was in the tradition of Christian women who covered their head. And so you had women in the 30s and 40s and 50s even who still wore headpieces. And so we did a lot of research and her head coverings were so beautiful. But present day, I would say I would love to give a hijab to Sheikha Moza of Qatar. She's such a style icon. I love her. She's amazing. It was a cool answer. I like it. Um, so what's next for Hoot Hijab um, and where can people find you? So you can find me, first and foremost, you can find us online at oathijab.com. That's H-A-U-T-E hijab.com. Also, please follow me on Instagram. I'm actually a lot of fun. And I have InstaLives a lot. And we get really deep on InstaLive. And we also have fun. So Instagram is the best place to find me after our website, of course, after you go shopping for your beautiful Mm -hmm. hijabs. We're also on Facebook. I have a YouTube channel where I do videos. But if you want to like directly get my attention, comment on an Instagram post and I'll see it. Yeah. So what's ahead for us? This is a crazy year. We actually hired five employees in the last three months. So we're in this like crazy growth spurt right now. In the next year, we're planning to really round out a lot of those categories we talked about. So bringing more options for women for every occasion of their lives. We're also working on something so crazy. It's not a hijab. I can't talk about it. It's top secret. 
Oh man! <laughs> it, it may not even happen, but if it does, it will be so epic. Um, so we're working on that right now. We'll see. We'll see how everything goes down. But um, you know, just look forward to really amazing hijab options. Well, we love what you guys are doing. Inshallah, their top secret project works Inshallah, out. Inshallah, make that for us. You know, everything is written. If it's meant to be, it'll happen. If it's not good for our company, then it won't happen. Cool. And the last question of the show, we promise is what would you attempt to do if you knew you could not fail? I feel like I'm already doing that. Like, you know, setting out to make hijab mainstream was no easy feat. You know what I'm saying? I thoroughly thought very, very clearly I would probably fail. (laughs) So I feel like I'm already doing that. Like there isn't anything else for me right now that I want to do that I'm not already doing. That's such a cop-out. I'm so sorry. I wish I had a better answer. I wish I had a juicier answer for you. I just No, but it makes complete sense. We we that's pretty cool. Like even for example, this thing I can't talk to you about, that's a great example of something that's so out the box that I'm doing that I could probably fail at, but I'm still gonna try because it would be so dope. So when it happens, I'll come back and be like, that's the thing. As you created so much FOMO, it's like no one's going to want to miss out. Everyone wants to know, what is this thing? <laughs> I'm like, I wear a hijab and I'm like, I need to know. I want to know. <laughs> inshallah, make job for us. Inshallah, it turns out. But Melanie, it's been amazing. And thank you so much for your time. We've really, really enjoyed interviewing you. And thank you so much for coming on the show. And thanks for your time. Thank you. And, and you're welcome. I had a blast. Bye. Hey guys, we hope you really enjoyed that episode with Melanie. We would love to hear from you on our social media. On Twitter, we are One Foot in the Sink with the number one. And on Instagram and Facebook, we are One Foot in the Sink with the O-N-E. You can also drop us a line by email, info at onefootinthesink.com. Let us know how we're doing, recommend any guests and make some suggestions on the opening question. And don't forget to tell all your friends about our podcast.